Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and I am with Mike Isretel for another Q&A. I know you guys are really going to enjoy this. Uh, we're just talking off air, and Mike said, literally, let's go on air and talk about the hypertrophy book, the kind of principles or the scientific principles of muscular hypertrophy, I guess the book is going to be called, or something along those lines. Yeah. So how's that going, Mike? Scientific Principles of Hypertrophy Training. It's the sister book to Scientific Principles of Strength Training. Um, I'm currently writing the main sections. So what happened was I wrote a detailed outline of every chapter and, uh, other than a couple introductory chapters and stuff, there's, uh, the chapters are just every principle. So specificity, overload, uh, fatigue management, so on and so forth. And, um, the first thing we did was myself. Uh, so I wrote the detailed outline of everything I wanted to put in and it took me, a long time to write that because it took, it took me uh, two days to write it and it took me post as some of you probably remember of like, Hey, shit you'd like to see in the hypertrophy book, like the questions you want answered. And I made sure we have everything in that post covered. And then I thought for, you know, several weeks I would, uh, this is like the sort of the bane of my existence, so to speak. I'll be falling asleep and I'll be thinking like, Oh fuck, uh, this is really interesting. I had to talk about this. And then, we'd sort of populate it further and further. And then Jared and James, uh, Jared Feather and James Hoffman, my two co-authors, they put in their um, edits. So they looked through all that and they said, okay, this is what you need and this is what you don't have. And James is super, especially, you know, Jared's good with making sure I put in everything we need, but James is super good at being critical of stuff I said and being like, you sure you want to put it this way? Maybe the fast way that way, or maybe this is too long. Or this is not long enough. And so we did that, and then I gave it similar for another couple of weeks where I added some more tidbits, and then when it stabilized, I started writing. And um, currently, I wrote the entire specificity chapter, and I'm halfway through the overload chapter. Halfway through the overload chapter, by the way, this is just a rough draft, so it's not going to be one-to-one, -one, but halfway through the overload chapter is 30 pages. <laughs> wow, nice. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, very detailed. Um, all of the stuff that we simply allude to or give shorthand answers to currently for the last several years that I've been discussing hypertrophy training is going to be explicitly discussed in this book. Um, and it's actually, we're saving quite a bit of space because we're going to be referencing probably in the introduction, we're going to be referencing multiple books as um, very highly recommended prerequisites. Um, I can give you a couple of uh, things we're probably referencing. Um, Eric Helms, Muscle and Strength Pyramids, just really good to read those to just because it's, it's a much more basic book. Um, uh, and, and even before that, we'll probably have these in sequence, um, is Greg Knuckles and Omar Asouf, um, uh books on training, like, what is it, like How to Lift Weights or whatever the book is called? <laughs> uh, it's um, not The Lifting Lyceum, it's something along, yeah. No, 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 I, no, no. I uh, exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, The Art and Science of Lifting, That's right? So we're going to, we're going to put that in. Um, I actually did some, uh, I did a review, uh, during the editing process, uh, for that book for Greg. So I looked through and, uh, nice. picked apart some stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which was great. It was, it was a phenomenal book. So it was really just nitpicking, which is what he asked me to do. Um, but, uh, we're going to be throwing that book like in the link, like right up front. And, uh, and when I advertise the book, I'll, I'll very often be like, okay, art and science of lifting was probably we should read first. The second thing, read if you really want to be prepped for this book is the muscle and strength pyramids by eric helms and colleagues and then if you really want to get the most out of the book slash you want to know the why of some of our recommendations that we just say cellular processes do this and you want to know which ones and why brad schoenfeld's hypertrophy textbook so with those three sources and of course like 
you know, we have to mention James Krieger's uh, online community is super great. And there's a bunch of other super great stuff, but those three sources are probably going to be like literally in the front of the book and be like, you should probably read these. And you don't have to. And a lot of our like RP plus members, a lot of folks from your revive stronger community, they're so savvy. They'll just jump right into this book and be like, wow, this is fucking great. And I get everything I, I, I'm afraid of is this is designed to be an advanced book. Scientific principles of strength training. You probably remember it's not an easy read. Like you got to know some shit to read that book. Um, if someone who hasn't been training for, you know, at all or six months picks up scientific principles of strength training, they're like, what the fuck is going on? It's like calculus in this book. This is ridiculous. Like decay rates and curves. This is dumb. But like, if you've been training for a while and really thinking about it, scientific principles of strength training, which at least to me, don't want to be too self-complimentary, has been described as like this like awakening, like, oh my God, you just finally put the shit together. Like, it makes so much sense. So, you know, we want the scientific principles of hypertrophy training to be that book for uh, hypertrophy. And so far, I'll tell you what, like I'm midway through the overload chapter. Oh my fucking God, it's good. Like, the, the book says shit in it, like, I managed to synthesize concepts as I write that I never even connected before. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, like myo reps, drop sets, uh, high rep sets in general, straight sets. Like we have all the categorization of why each one works and how to use it. Um, so this is just a book of a shitload of like, if you really want to know why and how hypertrophy training, it's going to give a shitload of answers. Um, uh, but one of the reasons like you know, we could have written a more introductory book, but the thing is, why when our amazing colleagues like Greg and Eric and Brad have already done all those books and we're just going to do like the advanced version and sort of put a stamp on it. So like, you know, people read it and they're like, Oh, this book's too fucking complicated. They're like, Oh bro, no worries. Like check out these other books and then try to read it again or something. No, I really like that. And I think it's, it is filling a gap in the market because I don't think there is a book out there now that's specifically going over every single principle of hypertrophy. They're more so like the muscle and strength pyramids. They just don't go into that far of detail about them. They're, no, it's not, you say. Yeah, it's not a knock on the book. The target market is people who just sort of started thinking about training and are just a bit confused, you know, because a lot of like the, especially Greg Knuckles, Omar Souf, that team, and then Eric Haldeman, his team, they're huge funnels for intake of people that have gotten into lifting immediately get hit with the wave of bro science. And they're the ones that try to pop their heads up out of the wave and go, hey, there's gotta be something that makes more sense than this. And and then Greg and Eric are like on life rafts reaching their hands like, hey, you know, we got you, right? And if you really want mechanisms and stuff, then, you know, Brad Schoenfeld is on his super tanker a couple yeah. miles away if you swim to that. But if you swim to that, then you get to go to the, you know, aircraft carrier of scientific principles of hypertrophy training eventually. Can we say it's an aircraft carrier? But it's really like one of those pirate ships that is like a hole in the rudder. <laughs> and, it, you know, James Hoffman is like the first mate. And I'm like, you know, I don't even know who I am. The guy that like scrubs the floors on the ship. <laughs> you know, the, the pirates are all sort of, genetically engineered squid people like in that one movie with Johnny Depp. I don't even know where I am anymore, Steve. Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Hypertrophy. That's right. Ooh, that, that's kind of sweet. That would be like the worst movie ever. The biggest flop of all time. You know, something weird happened recently, Mike. Someone said that I look like James Hoffman's long lost brother. And they're like, are you sure you're not related to James? I was like, I look nothing like James. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I swear to God, man. Some people are just like, okay, you have dark hair and a beard. Your name's Hoffman. They're like, okay. Yeah. Do you have a, a I know. DA for that, by the way? A year. Cool. A year, at least. So I think it's not going to take me more than a few months to finish the main writing. But the thing in making a good book, the main writing is only a part of the process. I write in a style in which I sit down and I go like this for hours and hours and hours. And then I, you know, have some water and 
make a shake and then I do this again for hours and hours and hours. And it, it's not exactly, I make sure to over describe and put too many thoughts on paper just so we can trim them out. Like too much is better than not enough. Mm-hmm. So then James Hoffman comes in and Jared Feather comes in and they see where I made mistakes. They see where I can explain more and they see where I'm over explaining. They make suggestions. We trim that, trim that, trim that. It takes a while. And then, um, uh, lastly, usually the person that does our book editing nowadays is uh, Dr. Melissa Davis, also from RP. She goes over everything with a fine-tooth comb to make sure the English language makes sense um, and that uh, she usually makes the graphs and charts for us and stuff like that. So uh, that takes, you know, it's because it's a somewhat sequential process. It takes a while. We really want a polished product. You know, Scientific Principles of Training is not a polished product. There's a second book we ever wrote. It's got spelling errors. It's fucking embarrassing. Um, the only reason we haven't updated it is because we've had better shit to do. You know, I, we, we could have just chosen this length of time to update uh, Scientific Principles of Strength Training, but I figure, like, um, you know, everything is has an opportunity cost, and the opportunity cost of that is delaying the hypertrophy book more, and I think people are really ready for the hypertrophy book. Based on responses of, like, hey, do you guys have any ideas about the hypertrophy book you want me to include? It was like the thousand people responded to that threat, and I was like, yeah, all right, I guess people are excited, so... I think it's time. And it's funny because a lot of people who message me about the strength training book are, are reading the strength training book to try to glean as much about hypertrophy training from that as possible. <laughs> and so one of the things they said is like, well, you know, Dr. Mike doesn't think you should train with, with any less than 60% of your max to, to, you know, to get muscle size. And I was like, no, that's in the context of strength training. Uh, you know, it's probably even higher number than that. And they're like, oh, okay. So it's kind of like you know, the scientific principles, scientific principles of strength training is currently like, like a, like a C plus hypertrophy book, you know, and we're trying to make an A plus book. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I can even remember when we first brought you over like a number of years ago now um, for the first seminar and people after that were like, well, even my mind was kind of blown from the amount of kind of things you're going through. You went through all the kind of uh, principles of hypertrophy back then. And no one, I no doubt it's more nuanced than that. And you've developed upon it. Cause I remember people asking like, when are you going to release a book? And you're like, fucking years down the line because I don't yeah. know enough yet. <laughs> well, you know, specifically what I was uh, waiting for a lot was the um, training frequency stuff. There just wasn't the data to support um, a really, you know, I had my thoughts about training frequency from a theoretical perspective. And because if you know enough science and theory, you can predict things pretty well. It turns out my thoughts were largely correct, which is really cool. Um, but we just needed, I mean, I'm not going to write a book on pure theory. Fuck that. Like we needed some science, man. And once the data came in, it enough of it came in, it started to look like, Oh wow. Okay. This makes a lot of sense. Um, now we have the data, we have good theory. Now we can write a book. Whereas before people were like, what are you gonna write the hypertrophy book? And I was like, I don't just don't know enough, man. We just don't know. Um, and, and there's stuff we still don't know. You know, the hypertrophy book is going to be updated uh, time after time eventually, because gee, you know, it's one of those things where, um, the science, you know, doesn't completely radically shift, but it, it you know, solidifies and et cetera. Let me give you a kind of a recent, I think your viewers probably get interested in this. Give me a recent example of some of the ebbs and flows. So probably two years ago, um, the, maybe not prevailing wisdom, but a, a lot of the thinkers in the field thought that hypertrophy was mediated by tension, uh, was mediated, uh, you know, perhaps by damage and, you know, very likely by metabolites as well. And then over the last sort of, from two years to now to about a year from now, or maybe about half a year, um, there was a shift slowly, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of promulgated uh, in largely by folks. And, and this is not a knock 
these folks, they had all the reason to believe that this was the case. Um, they're just very good scientists. Uh, Chris Beardsley from Strength and Conditioning Research and Mano Henselman's, um, two guys I can think of that were really sort of starting to uh, see it as, okay, maybe it's just tension, right? Because the metabolite stuff, some of it was like, ah, but there's not that much evidence for this. And uh, it was easy to explain with just tension what we needed metabolites for before, especially with, you know, how fast which fibers start to become more and more active um, uh, as the, like with a higher rep set, like towards the last couple sets, the fast twitch fibers are active, right? So maybe like we don't, it's still tension, it's just fiber by fiber as opposed to whole muscle. So that looked interesting. And I was like, well, fuck, maybe metabolites were bullshit. And then uh, a few studies came out. One of the ones that comes to mind very recently is they actually found a direct effect of lactate, E compound lactate on a hypertrophic signaling pathway that it literally caused growth. And you're like, all right, all right, we can't rule out metabolites. As a matter of fact, it's probably a thing. So all of a sudden metabolites are back. And it's just one of these things like if we had written the book, like six months ago, completely, we'd have been like, yeah, there's metabolites we could have chosen. Unfortunately, and for what this is worth, we'll update it as it comes around. I just finished writing the discussion on muscle damage. It is just not clear that muscle damage plays a positive role. It definitely plays a very tight correlative role. Let me explain that. If you train, if you arrange your training variables in such a way that causes no damage at all, you're just not going to be overloading and um, tension is going to have to be low, volume is going to have to be low, one or the other, uh, metabolites and all these other things, we cell swelling, all these other things we know definitely cause growth. They just, uh, they're just going to be like, you're going to dial them down so much that you're not going to get them. On the other hand, if, if we have direct evidence, pretty good evidence that if damage is excessive and very good theoretical backing, then you just get, don't get much growth because you're so busy recovering, you don't grow at all. So it's, the still recommendation on damage is still as we predict the theory, like so there's a U-shaped curve, right? But that's a very different question than asking, like, does damage itself, is damage itself detected? And Brad Schoenfeld just put out a review paper saying it actually might be um, versus it's just, is it just the other stuff that the damage co-varies with? So we have to, for now, unless some good studies come out in the next several months while the book is still in editing, uh, uh, for now, we have to say, like, you know, we actually just don't know if damage causes hypertrophy. Here are some good reasons to think why it does. Here are some good reasons to be very skeptical. But in either case, the recommendations likely don't change. And that's the thing, like, um, you know, uh, I'm, we're confident writing the book now, even though there are some definite holes in the literature. The holes are, are, are such that... We know sort of what's happening and what to do about it, but we don't know the exact mechanisms of why. That still allows us to develop a general theoretical arc and to give recommendations. If, if the holes were so big that the theoretical arc was impossible to establish, well, geez, I, I, I wouldn't make any recommendations on that. You know what I mean? So, uh, so luckily, the, the book is going to be great, I think, but I think it's one of those books that maybe every year, probably every two years, it's going to receive like a pretty fucking media update where we're going to clarify shit and then it's going to be kind of like a really uh, really awesome resource i think definitely not for like someone who just started training though fuck me if i wrote that if i read that book and i started training like oh what the fuck is all of this it was like we discussed seven stimulators of hypertrophic processes in the overload chapter and that has nothing to do with actual training it's just pure physiology and it was like well whatever i don't even know what the, what are we talking about here there's like curves and shit fuck that so uh luckily i think that book is i don't know uh, it's in demand to some extent no absolutely i think um like i don't know hypertrophy is in everyone wants to get more jacked especially the audience that i serve and you serve that just physique competitors everyone's more interested in that and i'm excited to learn about these things. And as we learn more, like are people going to start gaining more muscle? We're going to see people's natural like limits go further because actually more people just actually know how to do things. It's exciting. 
Sure. I think the answer to that is yes. But I think the bigger effect will be that, and this is actually why, Jesus, this is why we started RP. <laughs> um, RP coaches a lot of elite athletes, but our big mission with RP was that, you know, elite athletes will sort of be fine one way or another. They have great genetics and whatever, they train however they want. And as long as it's decent, it's pretty good. What, what breaks my fucking heart every time I see it is people without elite genetics that are good people, like most people are, just honest fucking people, just trying to put on some fucking muscle, lose some fucking fat. They fall for these dumbass fads that half the time are promulgated by elite athletes, unbeknownst to them. They think they're right, they're wrong. And they're just not getting any fucking, they're just pissing away fucking results. It's like watching someone at the gym who, you know, he clearly is a guy that like works in the office somewhere and he's coming in 5 to 7 p.m. every couple days and he's just doing like squats halfway down and swinging on his curls. And it's not ego. It's not like he's like a bro asshole. He's just an honest to God guy just trying to fucking grow muscle. He looks around, he reads some shit online and that's what like a lot of people are doing. That is why we started RP to be like, Hey, hey, come here, come here. You're not a stupid guy. Try this. It's just more dependable. I would just want more dependable mm-hmm. results for regular fucking people. Um, and I think that's a huge part of what Revive Stronger is about. I mean, like yeah. Revive Stronger, really, your group's not exactly full of elite athletes. There's a couple of really outstanding people as with every group, but a lot of people there are just guys who are, you know, regular guys just want good results. They're tired of being lied to and tired of being lied to honestly in the sense that people are deceiving themselves and they promulgate messages that are also deceptive because they just don't know any better. They're just tired of that shit. Because the thing is, like, those guys, the, the elite guys, they're going to be jacked. They're going to do dumb shit. They're still going to be jacked. And then you're not going to be jacked from doing dumb shit. They're going to be like, we're just not trying hard enough. And so many people get frustrated with that. They're like, fuck you. I try harder than you. And nothing's happening. But then that's where science comes in and just gives you, like, if you want to do the work, it gives you enough information to be like, okay, here's a real best bet of what's going to get you jacked. And if that doesn't work, uh, you know, we just need more advances in science and or you're just not going to be jacked <laughs> with any reasonable amount of effort. But at least you're giving it a good effort. And it's not just thoughtless bullshit of like, well, this is what other big guys do. Like, that's nice. But it's for some reason, smaller guys just don't work for them. No, I, I love that. And you're absolutely right. I remember when I was thinking about why I started like personal training and everything, a big part of it was I'd see these guys who would be trying to gain muscle they then not gain it and then they jump from, no, I'm not going to try and learn how to actually do it because they think they know. And then they jump to like steroid use or something right like that. And it's yeah. just like, oh God, you're like, this is, the, I need to fill this hole. So yep. yeah, for sure. I just had a kid message me, he was 17 years old, messaged me on Facebook. He's, uh, he's like, hey, should I start taking steroids? I want to be a bodybuilder. And I was like, no, fuck. <laughs> no, what's wrong with you? And I didn't say what's wrong with you. I was like, absolutely not. He's like, okay, so what should I do? I'm like, you train. And he's like, when should I take steroids? I'm like, I think in 10 years, you can revisit the subject and give it some thought. And he was like, really? That's a long time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. And I was like, steroids are poisonous. They're bad for your health. They're bad for your brain, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, okay. And I'm just like, ah, damn. Like, I don't know, man. Ah, Maybe I'm a different person. to me, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, steroids were this evil thing that criminals used and cheaters used. It just didn't even consider it. And then by the time that I had developed the sort of, um, you know, uh, ethical and moralistic nuance to understand that things are gradations of grays and have the trade-offs and are good and bad as sort of monolithic entities, by the time I was capable of that sort of thinking, I was old enough to reasonably assess whether or not anabolics were a good idea, but 
fuck, I think it's a it always baffles me. I think this is a rant I've gone on before, but I think it bears repeating. It's just crazy to me that this is actually a very pervasive attitude in Europe per se mm-hmm. uh, versus the United States. It's crazy to me that people just think steroids are just like another, it's like, it's, it's another supplement. Like, well, yeah. I, I, I do bench presses. Um, I decided to take creatine. I'm just going to buy trend. Like, are you fucking out of your mind? Like, this, this, this is like, it's like this order of magnitude of these huge problems and com- complexities and all this other stuff. And um, it's just, people just think of it as like, oh yeah, like I should just start that. Like, what are you talking about? And a part of that comes probably from the frustration of just not getting really good results, dependable results. And here's another one in which you understand the process. Like um, I was reading a Reddit thread about me, which is hilarious. Um, uh, people will say all kinds of shit when they're anonymous. It's funny. Um, but some of the guys on there, it just like, I don't know, it brought a tear to my eye, but it was really, it, it was just cool. Well, guys are like, you know, trying try to interpret my work. And some people are like, oh, this and that. And, and some guys are just like, hey, let's check this out. Here's what the Molly Landrocks are about. You just start training like not so much, enough to get like a decent pump. And then you just like slowly add weight and reps until you get really tired and then you deal with and you repeat. But that, that's like really kind of it. And, and some guy was like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. And another guy was like, hey, as soon as I started using this, like I was really skeptical of this. I started using this framework. I just understand my training so much and I know what to do every week. I know why I'm doing it. I know exactly what to do and why I'm doing it. And the results haven't been like crazy. They've been better. They haven't been crazy, but like, I, I know why they're happening and I know what I'm doing. Like, that's really awesome that science can give you this. Not that you're going to get these amazing results. They're going to be better for sure. But you also know that what you're doing works and why it works and how it works. You're on a fucking plan. It's like getting on a train that goes to like Leeds or some very fucking place where you can't live, right? So, you know, <laughs> London to Leeds or some shit, you, you know the train doesn't go 300 kilometers an hour, only goes 150, right? But you know what's on a literal fucking track to go to Leeds, right? You know that's where it's going. At least you're not like walking around in France somewhere with a train ticket. You can't read the shit because it's in French and you're like, I don't know, I'll get on this train. Hopefully we'll give it a fuck back to Leeds. It might, you know, that's that, you know, and then maybe you're like, oh, I need a high speed train. That's like steroids or whatever, right? Like, but it could be to Germany and you just go the fuck away from somewhere. So it's just great to develop an understanding enough to that you are a master of your own training. You might not be super technically proficient at knowing all the bullshit science, but you just know enough to be like, I know where I'm starting. I know how to progress. And I know that I'm making great gains. Boy, is that a good thing. And I think like more of that in the industry is where the industry is headed, which is great, but also that's just such a good thing in its, in its own right. No, I, I completely agree. And I, in many ways, I relate it to like people understanding calories and then macros rather than just seeing food as like clean, dirty, these sort of things, they feel very lost totally. because it's not dependable. Totally. Whereas when you have a scientific approach, there's dependable results there and you understand it's 100%. so much better. 100%. There's this settling I, I've noticed with people, uh, a mental and emotional settling that they experience where once they understand calories and macros and food composition, they diets which before they were uncertain about or like, oh, I don't know, like a like RP template, for example, or like using the RP diet app. Like if you just use it, you're like, oh, I don't know, it's telling me this, it's telling me that. But if you understand like the basic science, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Um, and then you're just not neurotic about it anymore. And then some other diet comes out, it's like the juice, fast, cleanse, asshole diet, drink bleach. And you're like, that sounds like it doesn't make any fucking sense. But if you don't know anything, you're like, oh, is that a good idea? Like, is that a diet to do? It's like, man, that confusion itself is a huge cost. And if you can just know enough to know, this is probably a pretty good diet. It might not be the best diet, but it's pretty fucking good. And I know how I'm progressing on it. And I know why 
geez, man, that's a powerful weapon because you can stick to something long enough. The rest of us know that have done this shit before, know that if whatever decent diet you stick to, if you stick to it, you'll get great results. And all of a sudden, people, because they understand the mechanics of the diet, they're more likely to stick to it. Like uh, in the RP Diet app, if it calculates that you're not losing weight fast enough, it cuts your macros. Surprise, right? In the people that know enough about the science, just the rudimentary part, they're not surprised by it, right? Some people, like, it cut my macros. Why? It's like, why do you think? You know, but the people who aren't surprised by it are like, well, this makes perfect sense. They might not know how to cut their own macros. There might be uncertainty about how much. No worries. The app takes care of all that. But at least you know why it's doing it, you know, where the app tells you, like, hey, eat, choose to eat four to six meals per day. You're not like, ooh, why isn't there an option for eight? Because it's fucking ridiculous. Like, why can't I just eat one meal? Because that's ridiculous. If you know just super basic shit, you're like, oh, this makes sense. Uh, I guess I'll choose four. Four sounds good. You know, so it, it's just um, I think it, what I'm getting to is I don't think everyone needs to be a super crazy expert on this, this stuff, like, you know, yourself or other folks who just know a ton of shit because it's their job. But if you just know the real basics of like progressive overload, super basic volume landmarks, like as in there's such a thing as too little training and such a thing as too much, and you probably need to stick between the two, calories, macros, basics of timing. If you know that stuff, you become 50 times the intelligent consumer. And you don't have to produce these digital products or these diets. You just All you have to do is consume them, but you know which ones are good and which ones aren't, and your life is better. It's almost like purchasing a car and just knowing basically like what horsepower means and what torque means and what fuel economy means. Imagine buying a car, not knowing any of those things. They can sell you a Ford Mustang V8. Uh, and all you want is a nice car to go around town and drop off your kids. <laughs> right. But if you're like, if you want a super fast car, you're not going to get sold a Honda Civic uh, because you don't know what you're looking at. It's, you know, if you know just a little about cars enough, but maybe like an hour of research, you can show up to the car dealership and you're like, okay, all these other cars, whatever. I'm looking at these three. Then you get a sales pitch, and then you can make sense out of the sales pitch versus just showing up and be like, what should I buy? Because with dieting and training in a marketplace, just like with cars, if you show up and you don't know what you want, guess what you're going to get sold? And whoever's the better salesman is going to sell you some, some bullshit. And for whatever it's worth, because most of us in the evidence-based community are so focused on designing products that work and not as focused on sales tactics, the people with the best sales tactics, best, being most viral or whatever dumb shit, um, they usually the ones that sell the fucking bullshit, yeah. you know, like of our expenses for RP, you know, marketing and advertising certainly take up some, but it's, you know, most of the expenses are like, like make new shit that works, you know? So uh, yeah, it's, 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 you know, I always, it's always tough to see people that have all of the potential intelligence and thoughtfulness to consume products that work and to or make their own. But, but it just doing the bro shit. I don't know why that like breaks my heart so much, but it does like seeing kids like, Maybe see kids are like, oh, look, I'm, I'm an engineering student. And then they're doing the dumbest shit you've ever seen at the yeah. gym. And I'm just like, ah, ah. Like, if you're just some kid who just barely knows how to read or some shit, I'm like, whatever. Like, you know, you're struggling with life. You come to the gym, do something, get rid of some stress. But, like, Jesus Christ, if you, if you think about stuff and then you do really dumb shit, it's kind of, like, just painful. Mm -hmm. No, completely. Uh, and it's just reminding me of I almost purchased, I remember – and I don't know if you know it, Mike. It was like the Afterburn Effect, by, and he was called like Mike Yang or bro, something. Bro, like, that sounds amazing. He was like some Asian dude with the best six-pack ever. I don't know Mike if Mike Chang. Mike Chang, that's the one. Yeah. I almost bought that back about, like, I don't know how many years ago now. Um, I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> that one, you would have been fucking ripped early, and you would have been much better, Steve. 
I'd have never met you, Mike. I would have been had my own YouTube channel selling some other shit. <laughs> exactly. You would have been just so you would have been in like a house in Hungary with like eight girls you met, aka hired prostitutes for a photo shoot. It would, you would have been a viral celebrity, man. Your life would have been better, Steve. Here's the only the whole point of this whole rant is I'm trying to tell you your life is worse because you met me. And it would have been way better if you just went like the Mike Chang route. You're at the, you met the wrong Mike. Mike is Rattel. Who's that? Uh, Mike yeah. Chang? <laughs> and actually, I'm just wondering, Mike, how can we get you on the Joe Rogan podcast? Have you ever, do you know how people get on that? Can we get yes. everyone who's watching this to email him and be like, get Mike on the Joe Rogan there's podcast? Only, there's only one way that I've been described to get on the Joe Rogan podcast. Joe Rogan hears about you and he becomes interested in you and he asks you to go on the podcast. Which is actually super great because like it's it's really an organic podcast. Like it's that's just how like, I work. Joe knows it, that's it. Yeah, totally. Like it's, there's no there's no like marketing or some PR or some shit. They literally does not have a as far as I know a PR contact person. Um, so if people keep tagging me enough, especially on Twitter, see I'm not on Twitter. I'm only on by proxy. Like my Facebook posts go to Twitter, and I'm not on Twitter because I opened it up and it was like people doing at blah, blah, at blah, blah, at blah. And it's one sentence of each of like, I'm like, what, what is this? This is like middle no, school. Tweet. <laughs> I'm like trying to say that it's like that short in characters too. Like that's what Instagram is for. So um, I'm not on Twitter really, but you know, he's on Twitter a lot. And you know, if, if anyone wants me on Joe Rogan, if they really sort of want to take up the fight, it just like mention me in discussions of which Joe Rogan is potentially interacting. Uh, and I don't know, like, fuck, I, yeah, that's about it. I mean, it's going to be cool. We seem like we're a pretty good match and both do jujitsu and both interested in physical stuff. Our politics align pretty closely. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of neat. You know, if I was on Joe Rogan, that'd be, that'd be super cool. Hey, Joe Rogan, if I was on Joe Rogan, I would legitimately get like a crazy, just like celebrity shock. Because Joe Rogan, I knew way before he was a podcaster. I was like a huge fan of his comedy and then him as like a show host and stuff. And then, an MMA commentary, and I'd just be like, uh, he'd be like, so, Dr. Mike, good to have you here. And I'm like, uh, oh, my God, I have a panic attack, which would be fun to see for, uh, for everyone. <laughs> right, so everyone listening, you now know, tag Mike in any Joe Rogan shit. We just need Mike on that podcast. For the panic attack. <laughs> yeah, for, the, for the panic attack, and then hopefully yeah. you survive and can spread some good stuff. Right, maybe. <laughs> Cool. Let's get to the first question Let's so we can it. at least answer some. Uh, and there I'm going to be super selfish and I think Pascal would probably murder me if I didn't answer his question. So I'm going to chuck this one along and I assume it's Pascal. It's going to be a good question. Uh, he has asked, how likely is true muscle loss going to happen for resistance trainees? He said, you can't take many studies and apply it to properly resistant training individuals and some cases natural bodybuilders even showed an increase in muscle mass during contest prep. I have the feeling that it's highly overstated, exaggerated, and very unlikely to see true muscle loss. I mean, you'd like to hear your thoughts. He said, even the studies on young athletes in a 40% deficit saw increases in lean uh, muscle mass. Mm. So the degree of advancement of the athlete, the degree of the nature of the deficit, the duration of the deficit, the degree of the compliance make a big difference. And to some extent, the structure of the training and the cardio. So let me be more specific. Um, almost all of the studies that they look at are from people that are not exactly what we would call well-trained. Some of them are trained in the sense that they've been resistance training for three plus years. But a lot of times during the observational period, they enhance the rigor and consistency of which they train and which they diet and why they are, why they are hypocaloric, they're paying attention to timing more and they're training harder and so on and so forth. 
So while the hypocaloric condition increases the chance of muscle loss, the other conditions make up for it by just becoming better. Um, so a lot of times when we see people like gain muscle in a deficit, you think, oh, fuck, like, we just gain muscle all the time, gain a surplus deficit, the maintenance. But in real life, it just doesn't seem to happen, right? Um, so, but, you know, I, I will say this is that for folks that are doing a good job with training and are doing crazy deficits and have been lifting for less than five years, uh, losing any noticeable muscle in deficit is possible, but you got to really try. Your volume has to be either way too low or too high. Your food be cut really to radical levels. Another easy one, though, is um, stress and sleep loss. So, for example, uh, to counter Pascal's uh, or to put some nuance into the studies cited about gaining muscle in uh, uh, contest, there's also some good literature on how much muscle loss can occur with the little slims that's been promulgated in studies to some extent. It's a lot. It's fucking scary how much muscle you can lose if you miss some sleep uh, pretty regularly. And so you can see some muscle loss, you know, pretty impressive muscle loss uh, with just shitty sleep. You combine it with a deficit, which has the positive feedback loop effect of making your sleep even worse. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's a recipe for muscle loss. Um, so I would say on average, muscle loss is either very minor or, or not at all for even contest prep. But there are definitely situations in which muscle loss can occur. So I, I would hesitate to make the statement that well, don't worry about muscle loss, just blah, blah, blah. I don't like, like that's like a typical Reddit statement. Like someone's like, I'm worried about muscle loss. Like, don't worry about muscle loss. Like, no, worry about it. Worry is a bad idea. Definitely have it in the back of your mind, but just make sure you're doing all the right stuff. And then you probably won't lose much muscle. Also, as long as you're paying attention to the relevant variables, for example, if your strength is declining rapidly, that's not a very good sign. Um, especially if it's declining rapidly in well-practiced exercises, uh, especially if you're already pretty depleted, you're not getting any more depleted and your strength is still going down. But for example, first couple of weeks of a hypocaloric diet, your glycogen never restocks fully. So first couple of weeks, you can get a little bit of a strength reduction, but then it should be stable. But if like every week or two, you get noticeably weaker, you're fucking losing muscle. There's just no way around that. So uh, another one is... A lot of times, here's some signs of muscle loss. A lot of times, your ability to do very heavy sets will decline um, because uh, so there's some conversion of faster fibers to slower fibers, both from a hypochloric condition and from the added cardio. Um, and, but your ability to do reps shouldn't change all that much, specifically reps in the uh, 12 to, to 30 range, I would say. I tell you this, man, if compared to the first two weeks of the diet, shit will go down because you're getting depleted. But like... If you compare weeks two through 12 and every other week, your ability to do sets of 12 to 20 declines noticeably, boy, ah, that's not good to see, man. Like if your ability to do sets of eight declines, yeah, you know, you're not stocked with glycogen and there's some fiber conversion and that makes sense. But a lot of times people, especially in the earlier to mid phases of strict diet, will see enhanced ability to do reps, especially back-to-back -back reps. Like, Leg presses, you know, on a mass phase, you might do 400 pounds for a set of 20 and then a set of 15 and a set of 10 because you get tired. Leg presses on a cutting phase later can be 400 pounds for a set of 20 and then a set of 18 and a set of 16 because you get less tired because you're more slower twitch. You have less body fat. You're in better cardiovascular shape. But, like, if your leg presses, uh, tail end of a diet are, like, 365 
or 1086, like you're in deep shit if it was four, you know what I mean? So, um, but that's like, you know, the, the fiber conversion and fatigue, it only goes so far. At some point you're losing muscle. And the thing is fatigue does cause direct muscle loss. So people are like, oh, it's just fatigue. Like, yeah, but it's not just fatigue. It is an inherent independent risk for muscle loss. Um, another thing is how long you diet for. When you diet for six months straight, uh, you can lose some pretty decent muscle. If you diet for eight to 12 weeks, you know, there's only so much you're going to lose. The good news is muscle is really pretty easy to regain if you lost it. But, you know, if you have a contest, that's zero consolation because nobody really gives a shit how big you are in your mass phase. Um, so, yeah, to summarize, muscle loss, if you do all the right stuff and you're reasonable about your goals, is minor to insignificant. But there are ways to fuck that up and get pretty fucking decent muscle loss. So do a good job and you'll probably be fine. But don't just assume muscle loss is just this thing that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. No, I, I like that. And I think it's it's something that became kind of popular, I guess. Um, Lyle McDonald had his rapid fat loss uh, diet protocol, where it's like just kind of protein sparing diet, um, where you're just eating like protein and veggies and the calorie deficit was huge. And I think you're, the point of which where you said for people who – like are maybe more intermediate and then get their shit really yeah, together for well, the yes, diet. Sure. Yeah. They can get away with it. But for a lot totally. of people listening here, probably and these are almost always short duration diet. Yeah. You know, people aren't doing a protein sparing modified fast for like 16 weeks. <laughs> like you will lose muscle doing that promise. Um, unless you're just a rank beginner or something like that. And so, you know, yeah. Like people also get a little bit certain, maybe not big for their britches is the right term. Get a little ahead of themselves. Do a six week, uh, PSMF, and then they'll be like, you don't lose muscle on diets. And I'm like, yeah, you did a six-week diet, though. And you've been training for two years, and you took your training really seriously when you were dieting, whereas most of the time you don't take it as seriously. Like, mm. you, know, you don't tell an IFBB pro that does a 20-week diet to get in shape and he's losing zero muscle mass. He's going to be like, well, see my before and after picture. I lost some fucking muscle mass. Look at my lifts that I'm doing. I lost some muscle mass. And you're like, God damn it. All right. <laughs> so, and this is especially true for like, um, it's, it's more true for national bodybuilders because, you know, I think pro could just use more and harsher gear as they get close to the show and lose no muscle. Um, but uh, a natural bodybuilder, especially at the tip of their, tip of their game, uh, you know, they, they can lose five pounds of muscle in a prep. The thing is they get back really fast, but what's the difference of five pounds on stage? And, and that's just natural bodybuilding. It's really fucking hard. Right. So, uh, you know, I wish it wasn't the case, but a lot of times it is. Yeah. Level of leanness. I think you also said was a massive thing that you have to consider. Don't let me add another one to that. Let me add another one to that. Even in drug using bodybuilders, getting to contest lean usually does not require muscle loss in, 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 in a natural bodybuilders. That's also the case. Uh, mostly not as much, but mostly, um, getting contest lean, to ultra freaky judges shit their pants lean almost always costs you muscle. Might not be a lot of muscle, but it's some muscle. How do we know this? Most competitors, when the judges say, look, you're in good, good shape, but we need you to be in amazing shape, they come in like 15 or 20 pounds lighter. Now, clearly a shitload of that is glycogen, blah, blah, blah. Some of it is fucking muscle. Some of it is fucking muscle. Um, there's a guy from Britain, actually, from England, uh, I forget his name, his first name, Hollings, Hollingshead, I think is his last name. Oh, yeah, yeah, James. Um, yeah, James Hollingshead. He's fucking enormous, but he was, like, super lean in, like, the 260s, I think, 
And the judges were like, mm, you need to get Chris crisp. And he did, but he was like 230 something. Wow. And he posted pictures and he was like, man, I qualified for whatever show, but I don't like this look. I like being bigger. Uh, and then he blew up into like 300 pounds, like overnight, you know, like it was like not <laughs> overnight, but it's a couple weeks later, he was like close to 300 again. Uh, so, you know, muscle is easy to regain a lot of that glycogen, but there's definitely a thing where like, if you want to get like, uh, like Cliff Wilson lean, I don't know, man. You might have to lose a little bit of muscle. What is another guy? Peter Fitchin, you know who that is? Yeah. Like, he's got like 18 glutes where his glutes are supposed to be. You don't get that lean without at least risking muscle loss somewhat. He might, I, I think he probably risks muscle mass to some extent, uh, but most people, that level of lean versus just having crisp glutes, that might require a little bit of muscle. It's a calculated risk. It's a calculated trade-off, but it's, it's something that's there. Um, here's another example. Uh, Big Ramey, Big Ramey at the two Olympias ago, I think, came in way better and crisper. But people were like, oh, man, if you just combined that earlier size with this new level of crispness, like, you fucking asshole. Great. <laughs> Are you a bodybuilding coach? You'd be the best coach ever. Like, what we need you to do is to be perfect. Like, no shit. But even in drug users like himself, the shit comes at a trade-off. Like, tell me muscle mass doesn't happen in contest prep and explain to me Big fucking Ramey why the hell he, like, you know, to get super duper shredded, had to come in considerably lighter. I'm sure if he knew of a way to, do, to not do that, he would have come in both. You know? mm -hmm. And it's funny you brought up Peter, Peter Fitchin because I was going to bring him up. He's, I think he's even been in the studies himself where he's lost signif fairly significant amounts of lean muscle mass. Like lean muscle mass. Ooh. He's lost muscle mean, mean, lean, yeah, lean muscle mass and fatty muscle mass. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I didn't even know that, but there you go. It makes perfect sense because he comes in like, just straight up fucking just just retardedly like just mm -hmm. nonsense lean. that that costs you but the thing is when he gets on stage people are like holy shit everyone else get off that guy's first and then we'll have a competition for a second awesome no really well answered and uh, we're going to the next question which is from patrick barney uh, he has asked protein seems to be comparable in stimulating insulin secretion um, so he said, aside from logistical and practical concerns, what are your thoughts on a much higher protein diet relative to reducing body fat gain in a surplus and still keeping insulin relatively high at most times? Protein is not as com comparably stimulative. This is whey protein. We, yeah, whey protein is, is uh, in some cases comparably stimulative to some carbohydrates, uh, but most protein is not remotely. If you eat a steak, you're getting at almost no insulin secretion whatsoever. Uh, most protein does not stimulate much insulin and carbohydrates stimulate more. Um, so if you want to consume all whey protein as most of your protein, then you're going to get pretty jacked. I have no idea the nutritional deficiencies or lopsidedness that's going to cause. I've never tried it. I think anything with just all shakes is kind of fucking weird. Um, and I wouldn't recommend it, but whey protein is unique in that regard. And there's a couple of other uh, milk proteins and stuff that do something like that, but generally whole food meat-based protein, um, and especially because vegetarian protein does not have a robust insulin or insulinogenic response. And it's not, not something to depend on. So I would say that a super high protein diet, um, probably doesn't stimulate insulin enough to where we want it to be with super high carbs. Um, yeah, that, that's it. Uh, uh, protein that is a very high amount has been researched in its ability to add muscle. 
And it's just anything past a gram per pound or so, it doesn't do anything super amazing. But the more carbs you take in, granted you don't gain too much weight and get fat, the more anabolism you seem to get. So protein does is very anabolic only to a point. Carbs are seemingly anabolic, like the more of them eat, the more anabolic they are, clearly for both muscle and fat at some point. But basically, like sort of by the broader Chavez high carb model, you want to eat enough protein, the minimum amount of fat you need to make sure everything's running well, and then you jack the carbs up as high as they'll go to get to your level of weight gain that you want. The more of that is carbs, the better. Cool. Yeah, I think this was a, a rebuttal to the high carb, lower fat approach um, that Broderick kind of has popularized in many ways. And I think there's some bodybuilders potentially out there. I think Cliff Wilson might have popularized this a little bit. I think I may have even spoken to you ages ago about um, him utilizing a higher protein uh, diet rather than like higher of other things. And I think it's just anecdotally they found things. And I guess this is someone trying to figure out if that was it. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's worth someone if they really think this has got validity behind it and we should experiment to it. Um, myself, we were talking about this in the podcast. My training partner, Charlie John, and Marcos Rodriguez, uh, co-host, they both experimented with uh, four grams per kilo and above protein for months on end before. Wow. And I yeah, asked him, like, how was that? And I've done something similar before. And they were like, it was Okay. Like, did you grow a lot? They're like, no. <laughs> you know, I, I wish the answer was more team. It's so sweet because it would be just, just this lean approach to getting more jack. I, I don't think that's the case. Cool. And then I had actually, I had a kind of question that's kind of sprung up from coaching a number of individuals. And I wonder in your experience, Mike, and how prevalent you think this might be where there's individuals where in, in that their volume is limited actually just by their time, by their lifestyle in that I'll quite often have clients who are like, I'm recovering well, I'm really good, but I have to be in and out of the gym in this amount of time. And I think it's useful for us to talk it through because I think you're going to say some things that will help with them to understand that that's okay. And that that is a thing as well, where they can be that recovered and it can be lifestyle things that could potentially get in the way. Oh man, that's super common. You know, a lot of people who tend to be a little bit more slower twitch tend to be a little bit on the not yet super enormously jacked side. Um, you know, plenty muscular, but not fucking monsters. Um, a lot of these individuals uh, have MRVs that are just wildly out of reach, as the uh, the uh, Schoenfeld and Krieger study illustrated, like uh, and a couple of other related studies that uh, Cody Hahn and, and my study with some others. Uh, you know, some MRVs are just really out there, man. 20, 30, 40 sets per week in some muscle groups. Jesus Christ, some people just don't have the time for that. And by some of you, probably most. Um, it's so funny. Somebody asked uh, Jared why he trains six days a week. And he's like, that's so many days it takes me to get through all my shit. And they're like, oh, fuck. Um, so and another common question is like on our physique templates at RP, they're like, you know, should I, what's the difference between a four or five and a six day physique template? And I was like, well, you know, five and six might have more volume. And they're like, can't you just smash the volume into the four day? I'm like, I don't know if you want to train eight hours of a second like that because you have the junk volume problems and nobody wants to be in the gym that long. So most people have what, maybe four hours a week for weight training and they're not going to, and their MRVs are way higher than that. If we put it in hours, their MRV could be eight hours a week, which means what? Here are some good practical takeaways. Number one, such individuals very rarely have to worry about pushing too hard. Uh, which means what? They can probably train at lower reps and reserve than the average person. 
Um, that means they can push two RAR, one RAR, zero RAR more often and have more exercises. Because they'll probably just recover. Because remember, lower RAR is better, it just causes more fatigue. But if fatigue's not really an issue for you, fuck, let's go. Um, a lot of times, if you're really time constrained, you will do routines in which basically every session is taken to volitional failure. Right? If someone had 30 minutes a week to work out, they would only be going to complete muscular failure as far as I'm concerned. Um, second, you want to limit your rest time in the gym so antagonistic supersets become a really, really good idea. So you basically do like a bunch of push-ups and then you do a bunch of pull-ups, a bunch of push-ups, a bunch of pull-ups, a bunch of bent rows, a bunch of bench press. And you essentially rest only as long as it takes to like remotely get under what's called your ventilatory threshold. So as soon as you stop lifting something, <laughs> as soon as your breathing goes back to, <sighs> you just do the next exercise. And you just use that rule and do four sets back to back, five sets back to back. It's like 15 seconds rest for most people. And because they're antagonistic groups, one technically recovers a little bit while the other goes, it's a great way to smash a shitload of volume in a short level of time. What I, again, back to our earlier discussion of shit you don't like to see in the gym because you know people are missing out, is people who have very little bit of time, but they're like doing powerlifting workouts. They just don't know any better. They're like sitting around for five minutes and grabbing yeah. the knees. What are you doing? <laughs> like you could be getting like 10 times the volume. And then the, the, the next retort is often, well, the antagonistic supersets leave me a little more tired. I can't lift as much weight. Like, but guess what, motherfucker? My volume is more important than weight and, and hypertrophy. Um, and these, these are just the constraints you have to get. The problem isn't the antagonistic superset. The antagonistic superset is a response to the problem you not have enough time. If you had more time, we would absolutely get rid of it. I've been very clear. I never do antagonistic supersets. Why? Because I work from home and I can live for as long as I want. Like, but if I had a really scheduled constraint, I would absolutely do antagonistic supersets. I would probably do higher reps on general, uh, in general to just smash more volume in and, and so on and so forth. So what is optimal in a very constrained situation is different than what is optimal in a situation that's largely unconstrained. And so those folks can train harder and go to feeling often, antagonistic supersets all the time. Soon as they hit the gym, after they warm up, their workout is pure fucking hell. And they think, oh, fuck, that's so hard. Well, good news, you only have three or four of them shits a week, and it's only an hour. You know, Jared Feather trains for 10 hours a week, but his workouts are easier, so to speak, because he gets more rest, he is stimulated more thoroughly, so on and so forth. So there's always that balance there. Mm -hmm. No, really nice. And I think what happens quite often for me is they can, they would kind of starting with their minimum effective volume and we're progressing up and it kind of becomes a point at which where they're still able to recover for more, but they then have a time limit. So then we just end up kind of pushing similar volumes and extend the mesocycle where it might've been totally. four or five week to five or six weeks. And they hit their MRV, like you always yep. say, you're going to hit it eventually. Yeah. Extending the mesocycle is another great tip. Like you just won't need to deload as often. And also, I think uh, again, you can train relatively harder a session to session. Because like if you just leave it all in the tank, like or just leave it all on the gym floor one session, someone could say like, yeah, well, you know, what about next week? Are you save it for that. Be like, I have no problem recovering for next week. You're like, oh, oh right on. I guess that's good. So. Cool, perfect. And um, next question kind of relates to deloads, and this is from Andre Larson. He said uh, basically. He wrote out a load and he said, the question basically means how fucked up should you feel before a deload? He was kind of talking about, he thinks like in a situation, if you think you could just about overload for another week, should you? And so how yeah. fucked up should you be? Almost never. Um, to overload for another week, to make that decision, you have to be, I would say, two thirds confident that you can make it happen at least, at least. So say was one third probability that I won't be able to make it through next week and overload successfully. 
there's a two-thirds probability that I will be able to make it to next week and overall successfully. This is a, a logical decision. You have a decision-making process you go through at the end of your N minus one week, right? Let's say you planned on overloading for six weeks, you're at week five, you look ahead for the sixth week and you're like, okay, there's a 75% chance I can make it, do it. Uh, if there is a 60% chance you can make it, that's under two thirds, I would just demote. Um, why? What you gain in accumulation to rest pairing is relatively small if you continue to train for one week. What you lose potentially in injury and in just sub-stimulative training is, uh, you know, meaningful. And uh, especially that injury and the probability of overreaching in such a way that it takes longer than a week to recover. So then you fuck up your paradigm anyway. Um, there are some big downsides. So I think pushing it really hard is good. But if you're not sure you're going to be able to get through it, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't go through with it and just deload. So but the answer is, is, is pretty much that two-thirds rule reflects the very simplified logic of if you don't think you can make it another week, don't. <laughs> If you think you can make it another week, go for it. So that would be my answer. I, I hope that's informative enough. Yeah, I, I, I'm always saying to people, if you need to ask whether you should deload, you kind of have your answer there. Um, the only thing I would add to that, I don't know if someone's maybe super advanced, whether or not they need to sometimes go through these periods of time. I don't know if that makes any difference. Well, so super advanced people can definitely benefit from functional reaching more, but they also are at higher injury risk because they're both training long enough to have some degradation of their physical structure that make injury risk more likely. They have more injury summated over the course of time. And when you've had a certain injury, it tends to repeat itself more often. And also they um, are stronger and bigger uh, and their muscle size to tendon strength ratios are off. So I would say that to them, the logic is on average roughly the same. Okay. Uh, so, but here's the thing about advanced people. Here's the benefit. So we're saying, well, it sounds a lot like beginners advance at the same uh, sort of topography to look at. They don't. Here's why. They have the same sort of similar decision-making to me. Because advanced people know better. <laughs> you would think, right? So if you're advanced, it's not that, you know, the cutoffs are different necessarily. It's that you know you got another cycle and you're not. Like everyone I've trained with has been advanced. Everyone. Most people that I've trained with and, and coached that have been advanced, they tell me when they're going to do those. I don't tell them. Like, and usually when I learn the bodies well enough, we have the same answer all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it's very rarely they're like, yeah, I think I can do it. And they're just wildly wrong. Most of the time they're like, yeah, fuck that. And these are all super big high level athletes. They're, they're egotistical nightmares, right? They want pain and suffering. They want to be the best, but they've learned over, Jesus, eight years, 16 years, something like that, that you just it's, hit that brick wall, it hits you back. So they know, like, okay, either I'm going to have a good, because here's another thing, especially for strength power athletes, but for sure for hypertrophy as well, a good week of training is great. A bad week of training is really bad. Um, a week where you deloaded, where you maybe could have pushed it a little, is okay. But a week where you tried to push it and couldn't is real bad, because that is simultaneously under-stimulative and not easy enough for you to recover fatigue. It's worse in both worlds. Basically, put it another way, if you choose to do another week, but you can't hit PRs slash get to your volume targets, you're in that dead zone between maintenance volume and minimum effective volume, okay? Which means you're just doing a whole lot of nothing, which is really fucking bad, right? And, 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 and it's not just nothing, it's injury risk, et cetera. It's extra cumulative fatigue that you're going to have to take off the back end. So I would say that if you think you can make it, make it. If you think you can't, don't. And, and that's probably going to serve 
pretty well. Cool, fantastic. We'll get one more question. So this is from uh, Justin Mazlowski. And he has said, do you think you can get newbie gains in a body part you've never focused on training on despite being an intermediate or advanced lifter? So he brings up the example of direct neck training. I guess that could be like forearms. People generally haven't trained. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Um, there's a little bit of a, uh, a softening of that because... Uh, your muscles get ancillary work from all the years of training you've been doing. So they're not exactly going to be newbie muscles in almost any sense. For example, you squat a leg press enough, your calves will grow somewhat. They'll get some training stimulus and that's a resistance to stimulation. If you do shrugs and bent rows and shit like that, your neck is going to be hypertrophied pretty well from just doing that. So um, it's not going to be super newbie gains. Uh, forearms are actually a really good example because, look, you've been gripping shit for how long now? And bent rows and pull-ups, your forearms are not new. Um, as a matter of fact, think of anyone who has the same size forms now is when they started training. That's insane. Like you would have like these ridiculous body <laughs> forms. Like before I ever trained my forms preferentially, my forms are really big, but can you get something like newbie ish better gains? Not having trained something directly. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times you see that with like people who like bros that just train upper body for the first time ever, they started training their legs. Oh my God. They just skyrocket. And you're like, how the fuck is this possible? Well, they have small legs to begin with. And they never trained them before. So it's definitely a thing, but it's a moderated thing where because body parts get somewhat exposed, sometimes largely exposed, it's not going to be like, I started training my forms about a year ago and uh, I got great results, but not amazing results. Um, I started training my traps. I got very good results, not amazing results. Um, I started training my biceps a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago. I started training my biceps for the first time uh, preferentially because for years and years, I would just power lift and just do compound rowing and pulling. And that's all I got for my biceps. My biceps were pretty decent size by the time I started training. Did they get bigger? Yeah, totally. But what if it wasn't like day and it took a while for them to grow. So definitely some moderation there. Brilliant. Yeah, and the we're talking about like the volume thing and the time. It's crazy how when you get to this point where even doing these sort of things is something that's coming to your mind because you're like, oh, this could get bigger your volumes are then you need the time for it because most people don't have the time to be able to think, Oh yeah, I'm going to do some forearm work as well. Let me rant really quick. Uh, in the, uh, templates, for example, and some of our other products, there's like a three day option where you train just three days a week. And you have to limit an exercise number. So people aren't in the gym for three hours. And so it's not volume. And some of the, you know, almost everyone that uses it was like super right on and the other fuck's going on. Some of the curious questions we've had are like, why isn't there any direct trap work here? We're like, what? The f what? Like, why isn't there any direct forearm work? Like, you train three times a week. Will you tell me when you're going to do direct forearm work and what that's going to knock out of the program? Like, you're going to do a four-hour workout? It's yeah. just completely insane. Um, it's just it's sometimes people are faced with these inherent constraint constraints, and they just want some magical way to get out of them. Like, uh, you know, it's just, it's funny. like, yeah, you're, if you want to develop your whole body, you're going to have to train a lot. Plain yeah. and simple. Brilliant. Mike, thank you so much for answering all these questions. It's been fantastic. People absolutely love these. I say that like every time, um, but I love doing them as well. This will probably come out in a number of weeks now. So um, I don't know if there's anything you want to let people know that's kind of happening um, with RP. I know you've got the, the hypertrophy book. I don't know if there's anything in the short or medium term kind of happening at the beginning of this year. Yeah, I don't know. The app is cool. The app is getting super advanced. Uh, it's available on iTunes and Google Play and it's getting better all the time. And we've got some updates to it in the 
couple months. Hopefully, when people see this in a month, um, that will be really, really super awesome, and um, it's going to be great. So check out the app if you're interested, and if you're not, fuck you. I don't ever need you or your money. You know, <laughs> Steve, it's time for more animosity in our industry. People are being too nice, and they, they respect the consumer too much. You'll fuck the consumer. Quote, Dr. Mike. <laughs> Brilliant. Guys, we will talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Take care.